0: Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgasa. Today's guest is Emeritus Professor Susan Edwards of the University of Buckingham. Susan Edwards is a researcher and campaigner holding degrees in both law and social sciences and a barrister. She campaigned for many years in the areas of women's international human rights, including lecturing in the United States of America, the Middle East, Australia, and Europe. An author of five books, plus co-writing a book, she has edited numerous journals and is an opinion writer for several leading newspapers, The Times, The Guardian, and The Age in Australia. Our latest work, The Political Appropriation of the Muslim Body Islamophobia, Counterterrorism Law and Gender, is the subject of this podcast interview. In this episode, we discuss Professor Edwards' thesis that values and principles of democracy, the rule of law, freedom of speech, and gender equality have been appropriated by politicians as a clock to advance Western power, territorial and military ambitions against the Middle East and, in effect, Muslims. Susan, welcome.
1: Thank you, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here and joining you in your podcast series.
0: Baroness Helena Kennedy, QC, After reviewing your book, Susan, wrote the following, and I quote, This is a serious and important book. We only have to review the human rights abuses domestically and globally to see that Muslims are facing targeted crimes, cruel discrimination and vicious ill treatment on an alarming scale. In some places, it's amounting to genocide, Susan, please tell us about a specific instance that touched your heart so powerfully that made you say, that's it. Enough is enough. I must write this book.
1: Um, Thank you, Stephen. I'm going to just uh, perhaps respond to that. First of all, to, to tell you how I came to write this um, this book. And then I'll say a little bit about what I think Helena Baroness Kennedy was referring to uh, when she uh, made that uh, commendation of, of the book. Um, enough is enough. You've put it like this. Well, actually, Stephen, there was there was no eureka moment. It, it was really incremental. Um, i have been writing, for example, about women, as you've said, for 40 years. And so, of course, the, the dress issue, the dress wars, the dress laws that were developing, particularly in Europe and France, uh, prohibiting the headscarf, uh, regulating the headscarf uh, in particular contexts. And then, of course, the niqab in 2010 uh they became uh, that issue became a very important moment in building this kind of incremental uh position that i came to when i where i felt it was impossible n- not to speak so so there was the head scoff of course there's been the uh whole question of the war on terror right from uh, the early 2000s the invasion of afghanistan the invasion of iraq that's been another moment uh, there's also been Shime, uh, Shabina uh, Begum, who, in fact, in this country, uh, e- even today, this uh, report in the Daily Mail uh, about her, she was the woman who left the United Kingdom when she was 15 in 2015 and went uh, to Syria to join ISIS. Um, and my interest in that was the way in which she had been failed as a child. As far as our laws are concerned, she was fifteen years of age. She has been failed as a child, and I'll have the opportunity, I hope, to say a little bit more about that. So, so there was Shamima Begum, uh, and there were many other instances. I've mean, mentioned the war on terror. There was the rise in hate crime. There was Brexit and Trump extremism. I mean, there were so many forces that were converging that that made it impossible for me to be silent. And I i had in my writing in all those areas tried to contextualise uh, women and dress. And why was it that, that it was so stereotyped and positioned in a particular way from state-sponsored uh, uh, d- distortions, if you like? Uh, why was it that the state and politicians were silent about any other narrative to do with Shabina Begin. And why was it that that they positioned the war on terror, the the US, the UK, in the way that that it did? And I wanted to contextualise it, but I did in my writings, I did in my teaching, I did in my lectures, and what I found was that I was running against the grain of the official narrative, which seemed to be fixed in its meaning. Um, And you know, there wasn't sufficient discourse that really looked at the way in which the headscarf, for example, uh, was a, had poly um, polysemic uh, meanings, had a variety of meanings. Uh, and as of course Stuart Hall said when he was talking about Franz Fanon and Franz Fanon uh, in his work *Black Skin, White Mask* also talked about, of course, Algeria, and he talked about the headscarf in that context. But I took from that uh, his expression, no sign is fixed in its meaning. And this was very important to try and contextualise the whole headscarf. So I tried to do that. I tried to contextualise why was it that young people were leaving to join ISIS? I tried to contextualise why was it that Uh, Muslims were so vilified collectively and those who were associated or connected uh, with with Muslims. Why was it? And again, I found I was going against the grain. There was a refusal of many politicians in the West to consider the impact of what they called foreign policy, so-called. Stripping, of course, the language so cleverly has stripped a lot of the meaning and the intention behind it. Foreign policy doesn't sound very dangerous when, in fact, it's being used to expand imperialistically the territorial ambitions that you referred to. So, um, I, I then came to feeling that I could, it was impossible for me. And I think it's important to position myself as I've tried to do in the book. Why should I speak about this? What place do I have to speak about? counter-terrorism laws, war on terror, Islamophobia. Um, and I make clear in the introduction that I don't want to take the place of anybody to speak. I don't want to steal that platform because that's the whole problem that I'm trying to look at in my book, that the other platforms, the alternative narratives have been silenced or stolen. I didn't wish to do that. But the other reason which has driven me for many years to have a particular view on this and perhaps it's a view uh, which is on both sides of the argument that I have the privilege to see because through marriage and my own family connections for 40 years I have been um, very much connected with a Muslim family Um, and so for that reason as well The personal is the political, and I felt, and the political is very personal, and I felt that I I should speak. But just moving on to to addressing the um, commendation, if you like, from uh, Baroness Kennedy QC. In her role as director of the International Bar Association Human Rights Institute, when she talks about genocide, she's also today referring implicitly to the treatment of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, for 1.4 million of them. And she's also referring to the 2 million Ouijas in the Xinjiang uh, area in China and their persecution and their genocide. Uh, And of course, in in China, there is an objective of making them simply Disappear. So, again, we're talking about Muslims globally. So Islamophobia becomes a, a very important uh, way uh, to look at this. And not only a way to look at it, it has become a way of defining a number of very diverse people across the world. It is a systemic uh, racism. Which is at the heart of my book and its manifestations.
0: The runner made definition of Islamophobia is as follows and I quote Islamophobia is any distinction, exclusion or restriction towards or preference against Muslims or those perceived to be Muslims that has the purpose or effect of nullifying or impairing the recognition, enjoyment or exercise on an equal footing of human rights and fundamental freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural or any other field of public life, end of quotation. Susan, please tell our audience in layman's language. Uh, I think you've dealt with it um, earlier what Islamophobia actually looks like on the streets of, say, London.
1: Well, Islamophobia, too. too. Thank you, Stephen, for that. Um, Islamophobia is a very contested construct. And I think in the book to to, um, not get too rooted in the debate about the meaning of Islamophobia and why it is contested, and why it is resisted, because that could be a book in itself. I use the word anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-Muslim discrimination, anti-Muslim hatred, uh, in the same sense as Islamophobia. Um, I agree with the Runnymede definition, which in fact was a definition going back to 1997, Stephen, uh, and it was... If you like, resurrected and reused in 2017. And it's been a definition which has been agreed by the all party group on um, uh, uh, Muslims, but not by the uh, Conservative uh, uh, Party. In fact, for two years that they have refused to acknowledge that definition. Don't know whether you want to remind everybody again of what it is in the sense of perhaps you would just remind the audience of what it is because the Conservative government are refusing to acknowledge that and some others, which are,
0: I, I'll come back to. Perhaps could you remind our audience? Okay. The, the definition runs as follows, and I quote, Islamophobia is any distinction, exclusion or restriction towards or preference against Muslims Or those perceived to be Muslims that has the purpose or effect of nullifying or impairing the recognition, enjoyment, or exercise on an equal footing of human rights and fundamental freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural, or any other field of public life. End of quotation.
1: Mm. Well, it's a bit difficult to see what exactly uh, is the problem with that, or why there is resistance uh, to that definition. Um, so, so let let's just have a look at you know the resistance. As I've said, the the conservative government for two years has not accepted it. Uh, the police uh, are concerned about it. Some on the left are concerned, and some. Um, uh, what I would call liberals are concerned. So, so I mean, you know, the, the government uh, w- won't accept it because, of course, if, if they uh, introduce and they do their counter-terrorist legislation and their prevent policy, uh, they feel that it may have a limiting effect on some of the legal framework that they, they have developed. The police are concerned that it will impact on policing, operations and, and surveillance uh, and, and be seen as, as Islamophobic. Some on the left are concerned. Now, Now, this, this, is, this is important, I think, but some on the left are concerned that the term will inhibit uh, the proper criticism of the c- conservative elements within the Muslim community. And the left, some on the left, I, I'm talking and thinking primarily of some women feminists on the left, who are concerned that a critique of the conservative elements in some Islamic communities, um, that will inhibit any attempt to bring about a more equal treatment of women within those communities. But uh, there's also the problem, I think, of the so-called liberal liberals as well, who argue, um, and for example, if, if we think about Melanie Phillips, the journalist, Uh, she has said that the concept islamophobia is anti-Jew. And I actually deal with that in the book. And what's important to also uh, refer to is that the Board of Deputies of British Jews, for an example, do not agree with Melanie Phillips uh, that the term is anti-Jew. And uh, why might it be so anti-Jew? It might be so because some of those who argue that society is Islamophobic are, may also be those who are concerned about the treatment of Palestinians in the occupied territories. And, and there we go off into another debate, um, which I'm going to leave to one side for the moment. You said on the streets. Well, on the streets. I suppose on the streets... Uh, We could see that what are the streets now? Well, the streets are online, social media, the media, um, the streets, uh, mosques, uh, the streets are places where, in fact, uh, women, particularly because of their visibility, experience hate crime, assaults and insults. So on the streets. But on the streets, as I say, is also the media and its virulent depiction and obsessive depiction of Muslims as a group to be feared. So in a sense, that's on the streets, the fake stories of Muslims. Um, For example, the Leveson inquiry in the United Kingdom um, revealed many things, one of which was the Islamophobia of particular newspapers especially. And some testimonies um, actually revealed the fact that some newspapers made up fake stories to um, appeal to their readership. Uh, Hate speech and uh, of course hate speech and anti-Muslim speech within political parties and the Conservative Party um, in in, uh, recent times we've seen that 57% of the Conservative Party have been said to have negative attitudes Invasion of other streets, well, we have, of course, uh, Islamophobia that manifests itself in the invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq and other countries. And we're seeing Islamophobia on the streets absolutely now today across Europe, within the European Union, within the United Kingdom now, in its treatment of uh, refugees who are fleeing the crises that have been created in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria in Afghanistan have been created by British and American uh, foreign policy. So that is part of the my response, I think, to that 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 invitation.
0: In your book you write extensively about Orientalism. Susan, is there a way of cultivating a serious interest in prioritising justice over short-term popularity than highlighting the impact of Orientalism on the families and friends who happen to be Muslims.
1: Is is there a way forward? That's a, a huge question. When we have a media and we have a whole legal media Political framework and architecture that um, doesn't provide the other narrative, which I spoke about earlier—that what I call the counter narrative—and just to say something about the word Orientalism, which may be new to some of your audience. What is it? Um, well, Edward Said, the late Edward Said, wrote magnificently in many books and articles on what he saw as Orientalism. And and it was, he said, um, a whole perceptual universe, if you like, of the way in which, whether it was art, literature, politics, media, um, the the superstructures within society, uh, how the whole notion of the West being the civilised, and the Near East and Middle East being the uncivilized, was projected constantly and continuously. Uh, And if we look at this perceptual universe, so he talked about that historically, but he brought it through to today, particularly in one of his works called Covering Islam. And if we look at that perceptual universe today, we've only got to look at the stereotypes within drama, within film uh, about the, the Muslim the Arab as dangerous I and mean, he talked Edward Said identified the way in which this persistent perpetual uh, trope of the Muslim Arab man as dangerous was promulgated and he talked about this as being orientalism orientalism being the whole of the framework that I've described and of course that continues today um Shakira Hussein who's also um Re- recommended my my, my book. Uh, she has written a marvelous book called um, "From Victims to Suspects," looking at uh, at women, Muslim women after nine eleven, uh, and I suppose that's a link in a sense with, of course, what Edward Said, who sadly died in two thousand um, and three, and Professor Said's work, of course, has, has and his framework has continued to. Uh, influence and inform writers and, and myself because that orientalism continues uh, uh, and the demonization, vilification, hatred and insult of Muslims and Arabs uh, continues and it actually influences and supports. It's a narrative, it's an ideology, it's a belief system, an artificial belief system, which has informed the war, war on terror. If we look at Bush and Blair, the language we were, we, they were going to civilise and bring human rights to Afghanistan and to Iraq and to to, to rid Iraq of of Saddam Hussein uh, and, of course, save women. Save women that that rather sticks in my throat because you know these were not countries that were particularly treating women in their countries as equal, and all of a sudden. Uh, with the help of, of, of Mrs. Bush as well, uh, they were going to uh, save women from the, save Arab women, Muslim women, from the Arab and Muslim male. And so, you know, o- Orientalism uh, as a whole, perceptual universe, went on to inform and support and condone uh, foreign policy. And, and of course, it had an impact as well on um Hate crime uh, and it had an impact on supporting um, the anti Muslim prejudice and discrimination. Have I answered that question?
0: I think you've answered it quite exhaustively. How far has the right wing populism influenced politicians with special reference to Muslims?
1: Well, I'm sure you you would agree that just looking back as a social commentator on um, Europe in the last couple of decades, in the last decade and the last few years especially, there has been a lurch to the right and right-wing popularism has become uh, more normalised and more mainstream. Um, And uh you know we could go through each of the countries uh and exactly what's happened with fusing um a notion of nationalism and nationalistic pride with really what xenophobia and and that tendency has been happening and, and it's been talked about by m- many writers uh and part of that right wing popularism has been almost putting up the anti migrant immigrant card as as the number one agenda and within that uh, muslims have of course borne very much the brunt of that right wing uh, populism and we could think of gert wilders in in holland and uh, i do write in my book on refugees and and if you like uh, put up uh, as one of the main protagonists of this right-wing uh, Hungary, and its building of the, the fence in Hungary. Uh, and, and how shocking that was to not just deter Muslims or immigrants, migrants, refugees, as other countries were with their, with their welfare, with their uh, lack of housing provision, with their lack of care, with, with all of this, um, to deter migrants. Uh, actually putting up this physical... I mean, it, it's, it was unconscionable. It was unimaginable. And, and it must still remain unimaginable because what we're having now in the last few weeks is is not only Hungary, we're having Poland and we've seen those terrible scenes. And again, w- what is the narrative? The narrative of these uh, refugees, very much like the Syrian refugees till the death of uh, Elan? who was washed up on the shore and a beach. Uh, before that happened, uh, we saw that the narrative was, was about people uh, being demonised and vilified and the language, language which was used. There was no language being used to identify these people um, as victims of Western foreign policy and Western invasion that not only killed many of their peoples, but also decimated the whole superstructure, the economy, education, housing, uh, everything in the superstructure was totally decimated for these people. So there was nothing. Um, And right-wing populism, of course, has been blazing to shore up the possibility, of these things being normalised. And, you know, if we think of the Refugee Convention, we have a Refugee Convention in 1951 that says those who fear persecution uh, in their countries, who are living in fear, um, and the Statue of Liberty, it's an irony, the base of the Statue of Liberty says something like, bring me your tired, huddled, poor, struggling to be free, etc., etc., bring them tempest-tossed to me. Um, And where has all that uh, gone? Where are those principles, those human rights being honoured? It's an irony, of course, um, that right-wing popularism um, has very much characterised the White House under Trump. And we've seen executive orders there excluding Muslims from a number of countries breaking up families. Um, uh, uh, Biden, of course, has now renounced those executive orders. Uh, But right-wing popularism has had uh, its impact, and particularly on Muslims, and actually condoned, provided a climate by which Islamophobia or anti-Muslim prejudice, discrimination and hate can be uh, normalised.
0: You've touched upon the British woman, Shamima Begum, as you clearly stated, she, when she was 15 years old, left her English home to join the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, ISIL, in Syria. Her attempted return to the UK in 2019 resulted in litigation which led to a Supreme Court decision and a public debate on whether extremists should be allowed to come back home. On 26 February 2021, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom unanimously ruled against her return. Now, as you mentioned earlier, this is an extremely complex case. But Susan, in layman's language, is... Moose Begum's situation an example of Orientalism at work that you speak of? And if yes, how would you present this young woman's case to the court of public opinion?
1: Well, I I think her lawyers have have attempted to do that at various stages. Um, And uh, some of the truth of what happened to Shamima Begum Um, in the early stages um, was uh, disclosed in a House of Commons uh, counter-terrorism committee um, some years ago. And if anybody wants to have a look at that, I suggest they they do indeed, because there you see some of the background. And so here was a 15-year-old schoolgirl at Bethnal Green Academy. And... uh, 15 years of age. So perhaps we ought to just think about that. If we could put aside uh, the the media who thirstily uh, a couple of years ago reported in every newspaper and for several days on end that Shamima Begum had said to the Times journalist, um, severed heads did not faze me, or words to that effect, that became the, the strap line for Shamima Begin, and I suppose um, a trope that she, from which she could not and may not now or in the future be able to escape. But the truth is, here was a 15-year-old schoolgirl at school who uh, left her school with two of her friends and travelled to Syria via Turkey. Her parents reported her missing uh, immediately at the end of that particular school day in February in 2015. Uh, And what should have happened and did not was that the police, um, who had been alerted, should have then implemented their procedure and given some of the background of, of a concern that the police had with some of the Girls in that school uh, should have reported it to and alerted the the uh, uh, border police. They did not. In fact, for two days, as the Home Office um, uh, committee that I've just referred to discovered, they didn't do report it. The man or officer in charge of this uh, action was, in fact, on holiday, so it was not reported. And so in those two days, and we know the story, we saw photographs uh, from CCTV of three girls going through uh, airport checks. And we saw them at standing at a bus station in, in Syria. So this was the 15 year old girl who went with two 16 year old friends. Uh, as far as um, UK law is concerned, she is considered to be a child until she is 18 years of age. The local authority have a duty to protect her. The police have a duty uh, and so do uh, the the school. So she goes goes to Syria and we know the rest of the story. The the other story or the other element of the story for public opinion is at the very same time that she went in 2015, um, the UK was passing a law which was uh, protecting those who were um, online uh, groomed, uh, sexually groomed online. So so the UK government, parliament were very concerned about s- grooming of young women online. So new legislation was put in place. But if we turn to sh- uh, Shamima Begum, there was no consideration that she had been groomed online, which indeed she had, or that she was a victim, or that we should protect her. So it, it was seen very differently. Um, I mentioned the media demonization and it continued. So it continued, uh, and it, it continued um, in recent times with many people writing columns saying, we don't want her back, She, she she's a terrorist, she's a danger, etc. Um, actually, as per newspaper reports today, the 23rd of November, she is wanting to return, and as you've said, the um the Supreme Court, finally, after a number of appeals, has ruled um, that, in fact, the, the law uh, and executive power um, is something that, or rather the role of the executive, is something that uh, must be uh, uh, respected. And so there's no possibility to, to interfere. That that was what the Supreme Court uh, concluded. We have legislation in place which places the responsibility on the Secretary of State to determine whether those who have gone to join ISIS uh, should be permitted to return. And they have made a decision, and that is the decision that the Supreme Court is bound to uh, follow. Shamima Begum today says, uh, apparently, in the press articles, um, that her only crime was being dumb enough to join ISIS, being dumb enough to join ISIS, Um, but that won't get very much traction. Uh, So at the moment she's in the Al Roj refugee camp in Syria. It's it's a terrible place, Um, and I don't know whether there's any further stages in terms of litigation for Shamima Begum, but my view, as I've said, is here was a child, she should have been protected, She was groomed um, and we should be looking at that. And in terms of repatriation, there's certainly sufficient within legislation that would allow her to be policed, uh, policed in the sense it would allow um, her to come back, the public to feel protected and various things could be put in place um, to ensure that... um, public would be protected if indeed they needed to be protected from her. So that would be in short what what I would say in response to Shamima Bagan.
0: <laughs> um, an obituary in the Associated Press dated 19th of October 2021 caught my eye the other day. It went something like this and I quote Colin Powell The trailblazing soldier and diplomat, whose sterling reputation of service to Republican and Democratic presidents was stained by his faulty claims to justify the 2003 U.S. war in Iraq, you write disturbingly about traumatic events in American-run prisons in Iraq, Susan. Most specifically, Abu Ghraib. Why was writing about Abu Ghraib so important to you?
1: Well, you 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 start off with uh, mentioning the faulty claims, and of course, the Chilcot Inquiry in two thousand and sixteen was of the view and that the evidence there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction and there was no evidence that uh, Saddam Hussein or Iraq was was a threat. Um, Abu Ghraib, of course, in in Iraq, um, was a pinnacle of what perhaps uh, Philippe Sands would call lawlessness in his splendid book, what Geoffrey Robertson, QC, uh, would call uh, lawlessness. Um, And in... Abu Ghraib, as we know, there's no one that is not aware of Abu Ghraib. The photographs on the web, for all to see, in perpetuity, the torture, the humiliation, the sexual sadism that took torture to a particular perverse place. Although I have to say, if anybody's read Jonathan Glover, Humanity, A Moral History of the 20th Century, Mm. he talks about festivals of cruelty, and this Mm. certainly was a festival of sexual sadism um, and, and what uh, men were forced to perform sexual acts upon one another, and it was photographed. Um, and uh, if you look at those who who commented on it, the late, wonderful Susan Sontag actually talked about the camera as a weapon. Um, and indeed, the, the atrocities at Abergrave live on forever. There seems to be no property in the image. There seems to be no property either in the dead. Um, And one cannot fail to be eternally sickened by what was happening in in Abu Ghraib and wonder as well. When one looks at the military tribunals that uh, tried uh, Grainer and um, England and others, uh, the derisory sentences that, that, w- that were passed. Um, so uh, Abu Ghraib is, uh, is something that actually lives on because we've seen it in many of our minds.
0: In chapter six of your book, Susan, entitled Chronicles of Torture, you quote Martha Nussbaum, an American philosopher Thus, and I quote here, I believe that this emphasis on patriotic pride is both morally dangerous and ultimately subversive of those worthy goals of patriotism set out to serve, for example, the goal of national unity in devotion to worthy moral ideals of justice and equality, end of quotation, Please talk to us about the American Patriot Acts of 2001, 2006 and 2011 with special reference to their impact on Muslims as a corporal body.
1: What what a wonderful word, the Patriot Acts. Just, you know, hold on to that for a moment. It's wonderful, isn't Mm. it? The Patriot Acts. Let's say nobody knows what these acts are. And we could ask... um, a group of school children, or we could ask a group of university students. Now, what do you think the Patriot Acts would be about? And they would talk about um, respect. They talk about the the positive notion of patriotism, respect, love of one's community, uh, loyalty, love of one's country. Uh, And in some ways, this very emotionalism around patriotism became fused in a way that justified a legal architecture that actually stripped away all those things. And the patriot acts uh, were uh, erected to allow the flouting of legal rules. Uh, Detention without trial was made possible forcible renditions bringing people from other countries who'd been tortured to Guantanamo Bay uh, uh, was permitted. Um, A war on Muslims, actually a war on Muslims was declared, and the whole notion of military tribunals rather than than criminal law tribunals, because if you were going to try those who were suspected of terrorist activity... That should correctly be within the domain of of criminal law, international criminal law. Uh, But no, these Patriot Acts permitted the setting up of, of military tribunals and, of course, Guantanamo Bay. And here we should say that in January of 2022 it will be 20 years that Guantanamo Bay has opened. We must shut it down. There are still 39 people in there. And In terms of Guantanamo Bay, uh, people were kept and are kept and have been kept there, detention without trial, and, of course, the whole of the the torture that we we know about. Um, So the Patriot Acts um, appealed to some emotional notion of loyalty, which allowed and facilitated this fusion of patriotism with, with Islamophobia.
0: This this leads on to the next question, wonderfully. Lord Steen's lecture in 2003, entitled "Guantanamo Bay: The Legal Black Hole," said this, and I quote: "The most powerful democracy is def- detaining hundreds of suspected foot soldiers of the Taliban in a legal black hole at the United States naval base at Guantanamo Bay, where." They await trial on capital charges by military tribunals. Judicial branches of government, although charged with the duty of standing between the government and individuals, are often too deferential to the executive in time of peace. How would the same judges act in time of crisis? End of quotation. Now, it is a well-known fact that. A barking dog is often more useful than a sleeping lion. Susan, what is the role of a judge, both in time of peace and in time of war, with special reference to torture?
1: Well, I think, you know, I I would suggest that everybody looks at Tom Bingham, the rule of law. Um, And of course, the role of the judge is to, we know, and these are here, the hallowed principles, to apply the law, to be impartial, to uphold human rights maxims, to be just, et cetera. And I think uh, to halt executive power, because that's what we've seen. Um, It hasn't been so much the corrosion of the judiciary, although there is a question there or the corrosion of lawyers, and there's a question there, or the corrosion of doctors, and there's a question there with respect in each way to to Guantanamo Bay, but it has been the corrosion of executive power. And, of course, some judges in the US did challenge the executive. Some did not. Um, And judges, of course, uh, were upholding, uh, in some cases, um, the rule of law, the international human rights conventions, the fought after human rights for centuries, that there should be no detention without trial. Uh, But the US executive introduced a new parallel system, if you like, of its own legal uh, language, the combatant, What is uh, an unlawful combatant? uh, And introducing a whole new scene and scenario of what they thought was possible. What happened in Guantanamo, as we know, was a whole array of torture, detention, dehumanisation, humiliation, a distortion of the word torture, The words that were used was its interrogation. Uh, The ideologies that were promulgated uh, were that it's necessary. Uh, The arguments put forward by some US politicians and the US government was that it's necessary to torture. We get information. Of course, it's true that after the Senate papers were released, and of course only some of the pages of the Senate papers, uh, it was seen that in fact torture has absolutely no um, relationship between uh, ensuring that truth will be spoken by the subject so tortured. Uh, That's well known, even though Trump, before he left office, uh, again, bleated the the mantra that torture will get us uh, important information. Um, And so there were a number, of course, American cases where judges did apply the law. They did stand up to the executive there was the case of uh, Hamdi, the case of Hamdan, the case of Boumediene. There were a number of cases from 2004 onwards. But a little word about the UK as well. The UK in Belmarsh Prison uh, after 2001 detained without trial. It didn't torture, unless you think detention without trial is torture. And that, that's another point when we come to think about Julian Assange's situation for speaking truth, for speaking the counter-narrative. Uh, for exposing the lies on uh, what had happened in the war on terror and the lies about other countries, uh, who is still in Belmarsh at this present time. And we wait for the judgment of the court on whether he should be extradited to the the United States. But back to the Belmarsh cases in 2004... Um, from 2001 to 2004, there were a number of detainees in Belmarsh. We didn't call them unlawful combatants. They were detained unlawfully without trial, uh, again, under a particular UK executive um, order that had been introduced in earlier legislation. But on December the 17th, 2004, thankfully, the House of Lords, including Lord Scott, Lord Stane, uh, a number of other lordships, declared that their detention was uh, contrary to Article 5 of the European Convention, contrary to Article 6, and they were released. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story because the government came back and introduced another piece of legislation which meant although they were not returned to prison, they were kept under, if you like, house arrest for so many hours per day um, under what was then called control orders. But that's another huge story. Uh, But importantly, uh, the UK were not then uh, totally immune um, from breaching some of the international max, uh, uh, international human rights maxims of which I've spoken.
0: Apropos of the rule of law in the United States of America, you write that the symbol of Lady Justice Justicia is now, and I quote, an image of a man hooded covered in a shroud, standing on a box, with electrical cords attached to his fingers, a torture to which Ali Shalal al-Qaisi and others were subjected to, end of quotation. Please tell us why this is so.
1: I I was particularly uh, impressed by the writings of the late Susan Sontag, who uh, I have have referred to a little bit earlier in our discussion, and Susan Sontag, um, when she spoke of the photographs and this particular photograph, said the photographs are us, uh, and she was vilified for saying so. And, and anybody who spoke to a counter narrative was vilified, and um, Chomsky. Um, Noam Chomsky and his writings um, was also referred to as an ap- apologist for terrorism. Uh, so Susan Sontag, of course, had a, a, was vilified and, and paid an enormous price um, in terms of being uh, criticised in this way for actually saying the photographs are us. But if you look at those photographs and you think of the symbols that uh, the U- the US so much promulgates and projects the land of the free um, I mentioned the Statue of Liberty bring me your tired and huddled masses struggling to be free bring them tempest toss to me uh, and yet the reality is very much those indelible photographs that live on forever and um, And in terms of the photographs, I I just want to to, um, refer the audience to the work of Chris Bartlett, who, since the camera was such a predatory weapon in Abu Ghraib, Chris Bartlett, the photographer, went back to um, Iraq in about 2016 Uh, And he went and he met with some of those men that were imprisoned in Abu Ghraib and who had been the victims of this torture, kind of torture. And he took an amazing set of the most beautiful photographs where the, the, the men that were photographed could be restored through the camera, no longer a predator, be restored to... Uh, their pride and their self-worth and their identity and their uh, dignity, that could all be restored to them. Um, and so I, I, I ask those who are interested to, to have a look at Chris Bartford's photographs that are on the World Wide Web as well, um, but it doesn't remove the damage and the image of US justice and US rule of law.
0: You write eloquently that war on terror has harmed Muslim men. And I quote you here Muslim detainees, their families, friends, and communities. The psychological impact on the Muslim prisoners is powerfully summed up by the Al Jazeera journalist Saleh El Jaili, who said, It never really left me. End of quotations. Susan. Based on your research and personal experience, what do you think is the long-term effect on, of war on terror on the mental health of Muslims, generally speaking?
1: Well, let me just say something about the journalist, because you know, the effect on the journalist, it's important for people to know that in Guantanamo Bay, I mean, he, he was in Guantanamo Bay, a journalist for Al Jazeera, Mm-hmm. And it's important to know that those in in Grand Bay, very very few, were ever convicted of any of any crime whatsoever. They, they were shepherds, they were bakers, they were farmers, uh, they were journalists, they they were humanitarian aid workers, um, and so, the effect on all of these people, on all of these communities. Um, Of course, individually, post-traumatic stress disorder. The effects within the first months of Guantanamo Bay, as I write, uh, many of the inmates committed suicide. The effects, actually, some of the perpetrators who did the waterboarding, who were responsible for the body-to-body, flesh-to-flesh torture that was inflicted, they were not pressing a button. They were not making the, the order to do it. Uh, they were actually doing that, as I say, face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh. They also, some of them, committed suicide. And I reflected at that point on what Franz Fanon had said about Algeria, uh, where he, um, in the 50s and 60s, was a psycho uh, psychiatrist. Uh, and he went uh, to work in Algeria. And he talked about the impact, also, on the, on those who perpetrated the atrocities on Algerians. So, so the effects are 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 wide, are very wide. Of course, for the individual Muslims, Arabs, uh, their families were broken, their countries are broken. There's no infrastructure. Uh, And So there are wider effects on the whole of the community. And as I've said, we now see that in the humanitarian crisis, which is currently on the borders of Poland as we speak today, those are the effects, and there will be long-term effects that will go on uh, throughout the decades.
0: You write forcefully about the seeming hypocrisy of the Western powers avowed and principled aim in prosecuting various in in the Middle East, which is to save women, as you mentioned earlier, from barbaric Muslim men. Are you saying, Susan, that the West is happy to ignore systemic and structural abuse of women and their rights, if it is an ally of theirs, such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, but call out the same practices in relation to perceived enemies or non-allies? And if the answer is yes, could you kindly explain?
1: Well, th- there's absolutely no doubt that, that uh, Islamic terrorism um, is, is a terrible Scourge that we are in the grip of, either perpetrated from those outside the UK or even perpetrated with from those within uh, the UK, um, and nobody would ever deny the terrible atrocity of 9/11 and various other terrorist acts that have happened throughout the world, in the UK and in Europe, um, and even last. Uh, Sunday, Sunday before Remembrance Sunday, where uh, we, uh, there was a, 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 we suspect, still alleged, we don't have sufficient information, but that there was a um, terror, there was a su- suicide uh, bombing that killed actually the person who'd made the bomb, and the taxi driver who was in the taxi with the man escaped uh, fortunately without too much uh, harm. So so we don't doubt we don't doubt that. Uh, But what the concern is here is that the 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 West is very keen, and I'll just give one example. Um, And I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia. Uh, When we come to look at 911, who were the people um, who actually committed that terrible, terrible atrocity? Were they Iraqis were they Afghanis were they Syrians uh, no they were not they were Saudis and they were Yemenis so one one has to ask the question that's the question also the question is um, why is it that the United Kingdom and I'll, I'll just stay with the United Kingdom for this moment um, has been if you like happy to continue to engage with Saudi Arabia and not be critical of the Saudi regime, whereas it's critical of Iran, it's critical of other regimes, but not Saudi Arabia. And one has to look at the whole interest around oil. And it's not only oil, but we look at the supplying of arms, the arms that that the British uh, government uh, has authorised licences to the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia and we know that these arms have been killing Yemeni uh, civilians Um, and of course there's a whole discussion we could be having about um, uh, Maktoum and horses and all the rest of it um, in terms of the way in which in the UK Saudi royalty is entertained and so Keeping the diplomatic ties are very important to us. What is the price of keeping those diplomatic ties? And again, of course, the killing of Hashokji, uh, that dreadful murderous killing of the journalist who was critical of the Saudi regime, Jamal Hashokji. Um, I wish people would pronounce it correctly. That is the correct pronunciation um, of uh, Jamal Hashokji who was murdered so brutally. Uh, what, what is said of that? So we, we, we choose our friends in brackets. We choose our enemies and we're very much in brackets. We're very much informed by looking after ourselves and what, um, and what they can do for us. So oil and the petra dollar um, and the sale of arms, which really... Um, I say this with sarcasm, you can't see my face here, I don't think, but uh, uh, it's supporting so much British industry. Is this what British workers want? Um, Is this the industries that they want to support?
0: We turn our focus now on the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. On 15th October... Sir David Amis was killed by an alleged terrorist during a constituency meeting, doing something he absolutely loved, making contact with his constituencies, physically present and attentive with an intimacy that is the hallmark of a British constituency MP. Clearly, getting in touch, connecting democratic institutions and the people who are represented by members of Parliament, is a precious jewel in British democracy. Susan, considering this death and several other terrorist attacks in the UK, would you say that the British policy of PREVENT is a waste of time?
1: Well, first of all, of course, today is the memorial service of Sir David Amos. Um, and it is an absolute tragedy that those who want to reach out to their communities politicians especially are involved in reaching out in this way um face this kind of uh, risk of attack uh, from anybody not not only uh, suspect uh, te- uh, islamic terrorists but Far, far right and we've seen the far right in the uh, tragic killing of uh, joe cox mp so that's the first thing but uh prevent uh, doesn't prevent and prevent it has demonstrated that it's a huge problem um in terms of the kind of stereotypes that it it is based on in terms of the the detection or the indicators of suspicion. What are the indicators? I mean, that's the whole point. Can we identify who is likely to be a terrorist threat? And so scenarios have been built up around who is likely to be radicalised. And one of the problems, um, and I will just mention only this one, is that uh, until 2019, um, the definition of radicalization, which the Prevent uh, program operated with, included uh, a notion of radicalization which involved um, saw extremism as active opposition to fundamental British values. Now, what does active opposition mean to fundamental British values? It might be criticism of British foreign policy in Afghanistan. It might be support um, for uh, Palestinians. It might be uh, critical of particular uh, governments. Uh, in the case of BUT, BU just for clarity's sake here, mm-hmm. anybody wants to look at this, the court ruled that 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 uh, was unlawful to And it would limit freedom of speech, you see. And that's what it was doing, limiting active opposition to fundamental British values, some British values. And of course, there's lots of organisations that would be opposing. I mean, the campaign against arms trade is opposing Britain's sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. Stop the war coalition opposed the wars on Afghanistan, on Iraq and opposed any attempt later to thinking about invading Iran, and, and so on. So this, this was a problem. And Prevent, of course, this is one of its problems, that it draws in so many people into that web. And we've heard so many stories of children being investigated because of radicalization. A child who had written, I live in a terrorist house. Poor child couldn't spell. And the child meant, I live in a terraced house. Uh, and um, another child from a school near Luton who got uh, collecting money for the children in Palestine, again, came under uh, suspicion of radicalisation. And we know that, in fact, some families, some children have been removed from parents who um, are particularly critical of British foreign policy and those matters I've s- suggested So prevent um, cannot necessarily prevent um, these uh, atrocities. However, having said that, I'm sure that there are cases where, of course, various um, acts of terrorism have been successfully intercepted. But the net, net has been thrown far too widely based on particular assumptions and stereotypes.
0: There are growing concerns following the recent appointment of Dominic Raab as the new Justice Secretary, that one of the things that Mr. Raab will do as Justice Secretary is to oversee the repeal of the Human Rights Act. If this were ever to come to pass, what do you think this action will mean to British Muslims specifically?
1: Well, you know, there's nothing new about Dominic Rupp and um, uh, the attempts to dismantle or curtail or even get rid of the Human Rights Act, which means uh, that that the Human Rights Act would mean that we would not need or be required to follow the European Convention on Human Rights. Actually, leaving Europe doesn't mean that we're not still bound by the European Convention of Human Rights, which, of course, is about the, the right to life, the right to be free from torture, the right to liberty, the right to a fair trial, the right to freedom of speech, uh, and so on. Um, but, you know, we, we can look at Theresa May, we can look at Bar- Boris uh, Johnson. I mean, particularly Boris, very recently, he, in the Queen's speech, I think, was it last year, you know, he promised he was going to get rid of the Human Rights Act. But, um, you know, there are some very fundamental matters in there that would have an impact not just on, of course, uh, Muslim communities, on all of our freedoms, if we we were to um, dilute that in any way. And of course, I think some of their concern comes uh, about, in terms of the way in which the European Convention of Human Rights and the articles I've mentioned in the convention and the Human Rights Act, which then brings rights home into our law, um, can uh, still sort of challenge is able to challenge some of the counter-terrorist policies that uh, uh, provisions and legislation that, that, that we have and you know I've mentioned the latest tranche of legislation was the the right to exclude p- people to c- citizens to come back into the United Kingdom but there are so many other aspects of, le- of the legislation that could be challenged uh, it, it's about challenging executive power. And, of course, the legislation has given so much power to the executive. Also, in terms of, I mentioned control orders earlier, which have now got another name, and that is the ability of the Secretary of State to decide on information that they have, which they cannot share, um, which is kept secret, that certain people should be um, under a control order, now called a pins order, uh, or, for example, the executive power under counter legislation, which allows the Secretary of State to proscribe particular organisations. Uh, you know, again, obviously, proscribe al-Qaeda, proscribe prescri- ISIS, etc. But a number of organisations have been prescribed um, which have been queryable, um, freedom fighters in particular countries that are not democratic um, have been prescribed. So um, th- there are issues around the power of the government without the, hum- the government, those those who are in power, and the erosion of the Human Rights Act would then uh, allow them to have much more uh, executive power executive exceptionalism, which is talked about in the US. And um, that's part of the problem, not only for Muslims, but for everybody.
0: The Conservative Election Bill will give ministers powers over what has, until now, been an independent electoral commission. If the bill were to become law, Ministers will be able to deploy the commission as they see fit. That is, they will be able to define what counts as election campaign. Is this a good thing for democracy and the rule of law, in light of your thesis of Western politicians' institutional racism towards Muslim peoples?
1: Well, I think your question uh, perceives a problem and a perniciousness that perhaps may not be seen by by people looking at this. I mean, we're probably thinking um it's about integrity in public life. Yeah. Um you and we've had lots of discussions and revelations in the last few weeks about how much various MPs are earning in their second jobs and have they declared them and should they declare them and how much money should Boris Johnson or anybody spend on his wallpaper or or what whatever else you know and how much of course money should uh, political parties be allowed to accept uh, openly secretly etc all those rules uh, about uh, public life but of course at the end of the day it's it, it's not just about that it's about the unchecked power it's about uh, the The whole question and the importance of the ballot box and being able to actually vote. And the concern is that, in that respect, uh, in in getting your voice heard, in that respect, that some organizations might be prohibited from participating. So we're just saying, let's say, uh, left wing perceived institutions, organizations might be prohibited, the rules might be put in such a way. So it's not So it's about public life in a much wider sense. And it does go, as you're saying, very worryingly, I think, to to the root of, of,
0: of democracy. The same bill also provides for a new requirement for voters to show a photo ID before being handed a ballot, a remedy, allegedly for voter fraud. Susan, what is your opinion about voter IDs and guess the background of much of the much contested issue of Muslim women's clothing in public places?
1: Well, the, the whole objective, I mean, if we look at the parliamentary debates on this, the whole objective is to increase voter participation. So how are we going to increase voter participation? The young Marginalised groups who feel they don't have a stake in the community, who feel that they're not heard, how are we going to to increase that? um And the feeling is that IDs getting an ID, so it's not just about the notion of fraud. I mean, it sounds like this is part of the objective. And let, let's really have a look at the facts. That when we come to voter fraud, there are very very few cases of voter fraud. So let's dismiss that. Let's look at voter participation. Is actually um, having to declare yourself with an identity card going to increase this? It's going to create this massive uh, problem of actually identity cards, who's going to manage that whole operation? And anyway, is it necessary and is it going to turn people away? And of course, with the whole question of... um, face coverings although very few women actually in the united kingdom i don't know the numbers actually wear a face covering although you, you wouldn't think it if you read some of the newspapers um it's nevertheless is an infringement on the privacy of somebody who wants to wear a, a face covering in my view it's totally unnecessary it, it's a red herring um and uh, we don't we don't need this kind of um this kind of policing i think it will fuel further feelings of alienation e- amongst those even who don't wear uh, face covering um and i don't think it is anything that that we need i'm i'm not really sure why it's part of the i can't see why it should be part of the latest proposals
0: what impact if any has Brexit had on UK's ability to tackle the twin problems of Islamic terrorism and Muslim integration in British society?
1: Well, we all know how very divisive Brexit, Brexit has been. Very divisive, um, and Brexit has fueled uh, much it, not only Islamophobia but the whole. Treatment, The anti, uh, not just anti-Muslim, but the racism in respect of various other communities. I mean, after Brexit had been won or lost, depending on which side of the fence you're on, in my local community, m- my local Polish uh, shops were defaced. So we're not just talking about uh, anti-Muslim feeling. It has actually emboldened. It has emboldened a feeling of us and them. Um, of of a difference between and again going back to nationalism patriotism that I spoke about earlier that has been further shored up uh, and emboldened Uh, and we know that post Brexit we have the evidence whether it's the Equality and Human Rights Commission in the UK or whether it's the uh, European Human Rights uh, Commission we see that actual race hatred and hate crimes have very much risen exponentially uh, since Brexit and particular groups. I'm not going to name any of them. I don't want to give them a further platform, but we know who they are. And we've moved into an era where we where hate speech is tolerated uh, m- much more th- than it ever was. So I think it has had a dim- damaging, damaging impact. Um, the, the, to deal with the twin problems of, of Islamic terrorism... Um, I think it's probably fueled a feeling of exclusion, of alienation, of, of anger, of disappointment, all these emotions within those communities, not just the Muslim community within the UK. Um, so I don't think it's, it's tackled. It may have actually exacerbated a feeling of outsideness. Um, and it has actually allowed and given permission for those who are Islamophobic who who are anti-Muslim and anti-other groups, um, to to have a
0: greater voice. Finally, Susan, what is your best tip for making a world a better place?
1: Well, I thought of Desert Island Discs. You know, when you
0: <laughs> when when
1: you say this, and I, I I think of you know what would be my books, and you know, there's no one message. So um, I, I'm going to just refer to somebody else, Timothy Snyder. He'll be very pleased. It's the New York Times bestseller. It's called On Tyranny, okay. 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And I do stay, say in my book that we must stand up, speak out and brave the tide to turn it. And um, The tide, that's the tide of the dominant lying narrative and let the counter narrative speak. But um, this is what uh, Timothy Snyder says. Stand out. Someone has to. It's easy to follow along. It can feel strange to do or say something different. But without that unease, there is no freedom. Remember Rosa Parks? The moment you set an example, the spell of the status quo is broken and other Others will follow. I do hope so. Thank you, Stephen.
0: At which point, I must say, Professor Susan Edwards, thank you so much for giving us your time. It it really has been enlightening.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. This podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge blog website. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to us. Until next time, goodbye.